0: Well, if you want to go ahead and turn to Rome, Romans, I always say Romans, maybe it's because I'm Reformed and it's just hard to not teach on Romans, uh, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 with me, and as you may well know, uh, it is not uncommon for on Easter Sunday morning that I preach from 1 Corinthians 15, and there's a, uh, there are several reasons I will say, when you are a pastor you're going to preach on the resurrection every Resurrection Sunday morning. And uh, let me just say, it's, it's tricky. You run out of passages eventually. Um, but I want to encourage you on something that it is a common thing to try to find some new angle every Sunday that pastors are like, well, let's do this thing and let's talk about this thing and then maybe we'll use Resurrection Sunday to launch some other series and so we'll put this angle on it and whatever. Can I just tell you, the good news that Jesus rose from the dead, that he died to pay our sin debt, that's good news, and we need to be reminded of it faithfully. And there's a reason why I'm going to 1 Corinthians 15, because it seems Paul gave that emphasis every time. So if you would, look with me. We're in chapter 15. We're going to begin in verse 1. And first, I'm going to pray one more time. Lord, I ask that you would be with us in a unique way, as you already are, um, Lord, illuminate the word of God that we would understand it with clarity. Anoint me that I would speak accurately your word. God, may the gospel go forth today. May we leave here challenged, filled with your Holy Spirit to do the work that you have for us. And God, just receive glory as we delight in this good news. In Christ's name, amen. So verse 1, it says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. Now, some of you may remember from our sermon series we did last year on 1 Corinthians that Paul had a lot of trouble with the church at Corinth. Uh, it's funny because, you know, he writes to, you know, Philippi, and he's like, I love you guys so much. And then with 1 Corinthians or both of the Corinthians, he's like, where do I start? <laughs> um There was actually an issue in Corinth that people were coming along teaching a false gospel. Had actually rebelled not just against Paul, but against the faithful gospel message. And there was a big mess that came out of that. And so Paul is not just saying, hey, hold on to the gospel because that's what matters. It's not merely that he's saying, of course he's saying that, that's important. But it's because somebody actually was trying to teach a false gospel in Corinth. And some had actually run away and believed it. And so Paul is saying, you better believe the gospel that I preach to you. Otherwise, this is all for naught. Like, either it's the gospel and you're holding fast to it, or this is all worthless. Right? So now I will say that this is a thing, even now, we have an issue with those who come along and try to change the very nature of the gospel. Uh, Some of you watched the documentary, American Gospel, Christ Crucified. And in it, uh, the quote-unquote progressive Christians are in this effort to try to take away the idea of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. It sounds too harsh to them, they don't like the idea of God's wrath, they're like, shouldn't have God done it another way? And I'm gonna tell you, you take away the substitutionary atonement, you have taken away the gospel. And so even now, just as in Paul's day, there is now also a continued effort to try to change the very nature of the gospel. And we were actually, I was actually discussing with Kathy earlier, how this is how our enemy likes to work. Because, sure, he could try to work through Scientology or through some other pagan thing, but that's never going to get him what he wants fully. What he wants is to corrupt the very gospel message so that, if possible, the very elect would be deceived. And so I've noticed this. That there is this effort to keep changing and keep tweaking and so that the main gospel or the gospel is missed. I got into a debate not too long ago with someone who was trying to say, well, you know, the gospel is not Jesus' death and resurrection. It's really this broader whatever. And I took him right here to verse 3. If you all would look there with me. Paul says, for for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Now here he said to hold fast to the gospel. Now he's telling you, here is the gospel that is of first importance. It says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom... Are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to, then to all of the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me, also as one abnormally born. Notice a couple of key things here. When we talk about the gospel, we normally give two key points. Now, we could argue there's always context to be put around it. Praise the Lord. But the two key points are the atoning death of, of Christ and the bodily resurrection of Christ. What is intriguing here in this phrasing that Paul gives, he actually provides evidence for both of those two points. So what you get is essentially a two-point message with subpoints under each thing. You have, first of all, the atoning death of Christ. And notice he even says, according to the scriptures, the language here is not just that this is some brand new thing that has never been thought of before by God, but rather that these things that God promised would happen have now happened. That he died according to the scriptures. And then it mentions, Paul mentions very clearly, that he was buried. The burial is clearly an under, a, a message that this is confirmation, this is evidence that Jesus really did die. Uh, one of the things we know, uh, there is a, a concept called the swoon theory that critics bring up and say, well, Jesus just passed out on the cross and then he you know, kind of felt better later and then that, that counted. Like, no, let me just tell you, there's so many reasons why that doesn't work. If, if you pass out on the cross, by the way, you suffocate. Uh, they stabbed him in the side with a, with a spear. Blood and water came out. He was already dead at that point. And also, let me just remind you, the apostles were terrified in the upper room after Jesus had died. Terrified. And I'm just going to tell you, if Jesus rolls in, barely alive, stumbling into the upper room, you don't say, yay, let's go die, Right? No, the only way that your fear turns into boldness is because Jesus walks in having conquered death. Anyway, the burial is a confirmation. It is evidence that Jesus did indeed die. And notice Paul follows this up with mentioning of the resurrection, point two in the gospel, and then says that he was seen by many. Now, I I want you to kind of put yourself in this mindset. You're in Corinth. You were not in Jerusalem you did not get to see the empty tomb. You didn't get to talk to any of these people. And so what Paul is providing is a documentation of these people saw him. So notice we have two points, each having clear testimony tied to it. Now, I want to just draw some special uh, focus here on the fact that the first language here is Paul says, I delivered to you what I also received. What does that tell us about what Paul was about to say there? That's that... This this message was there before he probably even believed. He says, I delivered to you what I also received. Now, this is what we would refer to as a pretextual gospel creed. And it's an interesting thing. We have several places in scripture where there's some reference to, hey, I told you this and also I heard it before. And usually these creeds are organized like hymns. There's kind of a poetic structure. You see this in Romans 10, uh, 9 and 10. We see it in Philippians 2 is a big one. We see it here in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 7. Uh, The phrasing, the language is, is very much like the catechisms that we just did. It was designed to pass along the doctrine of the early church through oral communication and memorization. And that's why Paul says, I mean here he's writing it in 1 Corinthians, but he said, I delivered to you. So that means I already told you this, but also I received it. So even before my conversion, this was what was being taught. Now, cool side note on this, but we have so many of these gospel creeds in scripture that would have been pretextual things that would have been sung alongside psalms, just like where Paul says psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, that they were elevated as very important Right? And what's interesting is because they predate the text of scripture, this whole thing where like the critics say, oh, those Christians, they didn't really believe Jesus was God or that He rose from the dead. That was a legend that developed later. We can trace back the creeds to within months of the resurrection. Uh, it just blows that, that legend theory out of the water. But here's, if you can just think about what was happening here though, I'd like to put yourself in the mindset of a, a Jew who is in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, Jesus is resurrected not long before the, 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 the apostles are gathered in the upper room and all of a sudden this thing happens. And and they're speaking in languages that you can hear. You came to Jerusalem to to celebrate the feast, and yet and you don't really speak Hebrew very well because you were raised abroad. And now you're hearing this message in your language. And you're like, how are these Galileans saying this? And this guy over here says, well, maybe they're drunk. What's going on? And this Peter stands up as, by the way, there have been tongues of fire over every one of these believers' heads. And you're like, that's just like the temple where the Holy Spirit pillar of fire would be over the holy of holies and now it sure looks like holy spirit is on these people too something is happening right and so then peter stands up and he delivers this gospel that ties the good news that you have been taught your whole life from the old testament with this message that jesus came conquered sin and death and rose from the dead and all of a sudden you believe And you're one of those 3,000 maybe that have put your faith in Christ, you get baptized, and now it's time to go home. Now, I'm not saying this is exactly when they would have developed this creed, although timing would line up. But imagine then, you're like, okay, well now this is huge, I need to go and tell. Well, well, you maybe don't read, or if you do, you certainly don't have access to many scrolls. it's going to take a long time to copy all this down, and so some of these believers get together and say, "All right, here's what we here's here is how you take this home to Rome," and they say, and so they get you to memorize this whole, Okay, so Christ died for our sins, according to scriptures. That's really important. It's part of that he rose from the dead. Uh, he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas. That's that's Cephas over there. So you've, you've talked to him, you've seen him. He's the guy that gave that big message that you just heard. Okay, so he appeared to him, then to the other 12, and then there were like 500 people at a time. And so now some of them have died, but like some of them are still alive. You can talk to that guy, that guy, that guy. And then you memorize this creed and you go home to Rome and you say, guys, something happened. And you deliver this gospel message and Surprise, just as we see in Romans 10:17 that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. You deliver that message and all of a sudden there's these others believing. And you say, "Well, okay, this is amazing. We've got a church now. And so then you teach them what you learned. And this, brothers and sisters, is how a lot of the gospel was being spread. It's why Paul, we can't really figure out how the church at Rome started. But our best guess is that this is how. Because Paul keeps saying, he's writing the book of Romans to the Romans saying like, I need to make sure you guys get your theology all built in. But praise the Lord, something happened there. I just want to point out this wonderful thing that's happening. This gospel proclamation. All it took was for somebody to say it. And the gospel spread like crazy. Because the good news was true. Brothers and sisters, Paul is writing and he's saying, this is everything. I deliver to you of a first importance. Brothers and sisters, the gospel is everything. So, uh, in the middle part of chapter 15, Paul gives some example related to this false teaching that was coming along where they were saying that, well, the, the, Jesus didn't really raise from the dead. There's not really a resurrection. This is all just kind of a spiritual thing. And Paul is countering that. In verse 20, if we're going to skip down to verse 20, he says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. I always like to point out this is not a message of universalism. This is everyone who is in Adam will stay in death, and everyone who is in Christ will be made alive. This is, but each in turn. Christ the first fruits, then when he comes those who belong to him, then the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. Now, thinking just a message, uh, just a minute, that that this message is not merely that Christ has risen and now he's king over your heart. The message is that Christ is king over everything. It says here that when he returns, he's going to destroy all dominion and authority. Uh, if you want to look at this kind of each in turn language that Paul has put in here. He says that first of all, Christ, he's the first fruits of the resurrection. We've we've seen what happens. He's he's showed up. But then also, eventually, all the believers will be raised. But then the third thing is that the kingdom that is going to be handed over to the Father, and this and and that all of this rule and authority is somehow to be destroyed. Now, I just want to not his rule and authority, but all this other. I will just make a little side note. Um, We are in a time where people are feeling the effects of tyranny. We have brothers and sisters being persecuted in North Korea, in Saudi Arabia, in China, in Canada. Um, Brothers and sisters being persecuted in Loudoun County, Virginia. Brothers and sisters being persecuted in New Jersey and California. Tyranny is like a boot stomping on all things that honor God right now, even within our country. And I think it's an intriguing thing now as I talk to even non-believers and when they look at like what's happening in Shanghai where people can't even leave their homes and they're just like, this is just not right. I'm like, exactly, exactly. And so to be able to say, listen, I am proclaiming the good news of a sovereign king who has beaten death and who is even now the king over everything. Matthew 28 says all authority has been given to him. And so, brothers and sisters, wouldn't you rather serve that king? And, and there are times which that means disobeying human leaders in order to obey the one true king, and then understanding that a day is coming when his kingdom is going to come in its fullness, and he will destroy every one of those false rulers. Brothers, uh, sisters, I will tell you, like, the gospel is absolutely about my repentance and faith. But man, the secondary reality is we proclaim Jesus' kingdom. In Romans 10, it says, I am to believe in his atoning death and resurrection and to declare him my king. The kingdom of God is coming. And that is key to this. And I will tell you right now, that's one more thing that really sounds good to someone who is parched on tyranny and thirsty for the water of the word that comes from the one true king. So, verse 25. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Uh, now, when it says uh, that everything, when it, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son of Man will be made subject to him who put all things under him, so that God may be all in all. I always just love Paul. He's like, just to clarify, in case you go off onto bad doctrine here. And uh, I like how Paul does that, brothers and sisters. The gospel results in the destruction of death and tyranny. So continuing on, he says, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have been born in the image of the earthly man, so we shall bear the image of the heavenly man. Verse 50 says, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must close itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where all death is your sting, or where all death is your victory, where all death is your sting. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I Think, think about the fact that in countless churches that have gone too far and have denied the bodily resurrection of Jesus, none of chapter 15 makes any sense. Right, in, in groups of people that would much rather worship Caesar than Christ as king, all of this chapter is easy to just kind of move away. None of it matters unless, as Paul said, Jesus really rose from the dead. That his actual body started to breathe again. That the blood flowed through him again. That he really did get up and walk and do all the things that are associated with a living being. And if that is true, and it is, then there is no sting in death anymore. This brothers and sisters is why the apostles were willing to die for the good news that Jesus had risen from the dead and paid our sin debt. It is only because it's true. And brothers, all of the evidence is for it, not to mention, Trumping all of that evidence is God's very word in the New Testament and the Old, that this gospel really did come true. Verse 58, he says, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. You think about this. He's writing to people who were tempted to deny the gospel. Right? And he's saying, let nothing, let no false gospel, no threat of any emperor, no threat of any Caesar, no anything, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Think about this. When I obey God rather than men, and I suffer scorn for it, my labor is not in vain. When it is a drudgery to teach my children in my home, because there's disruption and there's distraction, and I'm yet again, though, teaching the gospel to my children, my labor is not in vain. When I lose a loved one and I suffer and I'm grieving, my labor for the Lord is not in vain. When I share the gospel with my neighbor who hates God and I'm embarrassed and it's awkward because now he's really uncomfortable talking with me because he's tired of that difficult neighbor who keeps sharing the gospel, my neighbor, my labor is not in vain for my neighbor. When they take our brothers and sisters to the gallows, when in in Saudi Arabia people are thrown in prison for believing the good news and proclaiming it, in Russia now, when people are thrown in prison for proselytizing, the labor is not in vain. And whether it is me sharing the gospel with my neighbor, with my co-worker, or with my kids around the dinner table, or it's every Sunday as we come together and we proclaim this good news, the labor is not in vain. When it is easy, it is not in vain. When it is difficult, it is not in vain. And brothers and sisters, when a day comes and we stand before the God of creation, And he looks back on everything we did in obedience or at times in disobedience to his kingdom. And he remembers everything we've done. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant, brothers and sisters. Our labor will not be in vain. And so Paul says, stand firm. The gospel is true. Jesus rose from the dead. He paid your sin debt. Your labor is not in vain. And so let's remember the gospel today. Um, I'm going to pray and I'm going to turn it over to Brian. Um, Who can talk louder than phones? It's good. (laughs) Father God, I am still in awe to consider that before the world began, you planned all of this. You knew every little thing that was going to happen, including the sacrifice that you yourself was to make. And so, as we're even living out in the effects of this good news and proclaiming it still, God, we're amazed. And so we ask that you would receive glory, but Lord, I'm going to add also, as part of your glory growing, I'm asking that by your Holy Spirit, you would instill in us a passion and a desire to proclaim your gospel. Yes, Lord, may we do it with gentleness and respect, but Lord, would you make us bold for your gospel, bold to obey you and bold to proclaim your kingdom come, and to proclaim that you have indeed died to pay sin debts and risen from the dead to give new life. Um, God, would you just do a mighty work that we would be an evangelizing church as we make disciples. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.